Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, vajrayana, non-duality, grogu, compassion, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Catherine McGee. Catherine McGee has been teaching insight meditation at Gaia House and internationally since 1997. Her teaching emphasizes working with perceptions of the body on the path of awakening and in the healing of the individual and collective crises of our times. She's an advisor to One Earth Sangha and a long-term student of the Diamond Approach. And she has also collaborated with Rob Rubea in shaping and teaching soul-making dharma. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Soul-Making Dharma with Catherine McGee. Catherine, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's quite a pleasure to have you on the show for the first time. I just want to say that I was very sad to hear of the death of Rob Berbea and to say to you that, you know, his teaching has deeply, deeply influenced me and my practice and that of many people I know. So I did get a chance to say that to him at least a little bit, Mm -hmm. but for some reason I feel like I want to say it to you as well. Oh, thank you. It really touches me to hear you say that. Now, you are about to lead a course at Barry, at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, an online course in these days of COVID. Mm-hmm. And that course is in what I think is these days the main subject that you're teaching on, which is soul-making dharma. Is that correct? Yeah, I also teach my insight meditation retreats as well. And there's this developing body of work for soul-making dharma that's increasingly becoming my area of love and duty. Hmm. Is soul-making dharma up until now something that both you and Rob developed together? Yes and no. You can see in Rob's work that at the end of seeing that freeze and what doors that starts to open, his own practice went in the direction of what he initially called imaginal practice and that has come to be known as soul making dharma and we can differentiate those terms if you want so he had begun working on that on his own practice probably from about 2011 it hadn't fully become its own logos so to speak but he was developing that work and then had just begun to teach it in very small ways in day longs long retreats just offering this perspective and then we began working together in 2014 in a collaborative way and this flowered more this soul making dharma it helped him go further with it and then we've been teaching that together and he's been developing a lot around the ideas and framework around that all the way through until he died you know still putting out more talks and more perspectives on you know, the ethical dimension of soul making and you know coming back to preliminary practices and you know still like an incredible outpouring of creative brilliance i would say you know right up until really really close to when he died amazing yeah 
And so what has been your journey up until this point? What has, you know, brought you along the arc of your life until meeting this practice of soul-making dharma and developing it? Why did you initially get attracted to meditating? Okay. I was a school teacher in London, in the city of London, and finding it really difficult, even though I loved the children that I was teaching, just noticing that I needed to get out of there. And I went, as we called it in those days, traveling with that kind of privilege of just upending and going to India, but not with any intention of meditating more to follow where my cousins had been, who I really loved. They were older than me, and I thought, I want to go there. There's something about those cousins that I love. So I went to India and did various things, but ended up in Bodh Gaya, um, not with any intention of interest in meditation or the Dhamma, but just to be curious about what was happening there. And then while I was in Bodh Gaya, it got kind of woven into the Tibetan tradition, hearing teachings, and that was with the FPMT, the Foundations of the Preservation of the Mahayana tradition, that the Lama, Zopa Lama Yeshe people initially and then while I was there at the Thai temple in Bodh Gaya there was a teacher teaching who was from Guy House in England and I would go and listen to the evening talks and I was struck by both this Tibetan perspective I was hearing and this English man who had been a Thai monk sharing Dhamma so that was how I got first into the Dhamma. So simply through traveling and what was it about these Tibetan teachings that struck you so deeply? I remember I was living at their center there, the FPMT center in a little straw bale construction, and there was teachings happening by some lama in a tent that were being amplified outside, and I didn't want to go in because I was very committed to being non-religious. But I was hearing them through the loudspeaker, and I heard this translation of a very classic basic but very profound teaching where he made the discrimination between love and attachment. And I saw my head say, yeah, I know that. And I saw the rest of my body kind of answer, no, you don't. And it was like I was struck with, oh my goodness, there's more I need to understand here. And did you feel that you needed to then particularly work with that teacher, or did you feel... I wasn't attracted. Coming from a Catholic background, I was very suspicious of anything that looked too religious at the time. So no, I wasn't attracted to that at all. I was then attracted into what seemed a little bit more accessible to me. I did practice with them a little bit in the FPMT center, but not with that teacher, and then eventually ended up more with the lay insight meditation people. Because that felt safer? Because it felt maybe more resonant, more chimed with my self-sense. Yeah. Being, you know, a bit more modern and a bit more, you know, didn't want to do the bowing and all of that. So it chimed with my self-sense. It was easier. It was more resonant. It was easier to take in. And did you find that you you know, immediately resonated with meditation practice or was that really not your vibe at that point? I went straight into that. I realized that's what I needed to do. It's easy to say in retrospect how I didn't, you know, how it was as limited as there's always going to be a development there. If I had to answer yes or no, yes, I did resonate with it to the degree that I was able very much. And so how did you 
get from those beginnings, fascinating beginnings at Bodh Gaya, to being a full-time teacher of the Dharma? So when I would go to the Thai temple, there was Western people there being on retreat with these Western teachers. And I would be going to the evening talks. But while I was going in and out, one of the Thai monks there befriended me. And he gave me a program, you know, printed program for a center in England that was associated with these lay teachers that were teaching there called Gaia House, which probably you know, or many listeners might know, is kind of a sister center to IMS and Spirit Rock. And so I got that program from him. And even then, I remember stuffing it in the bottom of my backpack, thinking it was a bit like, you know, being given the church newsletter or something. So I didn't want to know about it. But eventually, I fished it back out and booked myself onto a 20-day silent retreat there at Guy House for the end of my year-long travels. And then really dived in and really, really loved what it opened up. So I was devoted kind of right away and then became, you know, volunteer staff person at the centre. And then eventually I married one of the other staff at that centre who was beginning being a teacher. And then we went to live at IMS. He got the job as the resident teacher at Insight Meditation Society in Barry about 1995, I think. Mm. And so we lived there for a little bit. So I was exposed and benefited from being resident there. And then my teachers, who were Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman, had asked me to help out on retreats when I got back. You know, So while I was there at IMS, I learned as much as I could and practiced and joined retreats. And I was even given the privilege to sit in on interviews. And then when I got back to England, I began teaching, just in really small ways with Christopher and Christina. Yeah like that. And then that became more and more of what I did. That's one version of it. If you don't mind, the part of that that is so intriguing, at least in the telling, this kind of immediate love of what it was and what you were doing, Mm. you know, and I'm curious if there's anything you want to add or share about that, because it's such a beautiful thing when someone deeply connects with the practice. But as you know, everyone connects with something different about it. Looking back now, what do you remember as, you know, the thing that was so alive in the practice for you that was so fresh? That's such an interesting question, given that we're going to talk about soul-making dharma. I think what I loved, particularly about the way they taught, which had a sort of quite open frame to it, If I look back with the language that I have now, I wouldn't have had this language then. It was very soulful for me. So it opened me to certain kinds of sensibility. Like maybe I wanted that even more than I wanted the ending of the dukkha. There were certain sensibilities that opened up, certain resonances that I did actually recognize from being a child that had been meaningful, resonant, rich, sacred opening, deeply meaningful, And I think that's what attracted me, actually, to be honest. Were these childhood resonances something that came out of your, like, literal Catholic spiritual background, like saints and stuff? Or was it something quite different than that? Well, okay, so yes and no, but not so much the saints part of it, not so much the sort of conceptual framework or the images from that background, but actually, you know, let's say as the meditation deepened, 
in that first three-week retreat. This feels very personal to share, actually. Um, you know, as the samadhi naturally gained richness and resonances, and, you know, as you've listened to Rob in the jhanas talks, you'll hear him talk about that, like particularly in the maybe first and second jhanas, not that it was formally jhana, but with those qualities of the piti and the sukha, let's say that there was a sense of, oh, my goodness, I knew this from being in church. Like, this is what happened to me, you know, after Holy Communion. I'd sit back down in the quiet or kneel down, and there would be some sukkah looking back, like the body would fill with that sense that can have that very, not just the happiness, but that it can bring in that sense of that sort of divinity that comes with that. Yeah. Would you say that included some energy body type stuff? Like Absolutely. So, yeah, if I look back, if I take the child image, let's say I'm seven or eight, yeah, the whole sense of the body in that loveliness. I mean, first maybe more the pity, that kind of more rapturous whole energy body sense, which was probably seemingly available then. Yeah, filling that whole arena of the body and the space around the body and through the body and the skull, so the whole self-sense becomes more malleable, becomes more filled with a very particular kind of resonance. Yeah, I imagine you know that too. But yeah, so conceived of within this little girl in South London, kind of kneeling after Holy Communion, and then, <laughs> then I'm 26 and I'm in Devon, and it's not the same framework at all, obviously, and very not, like very secular, but still this same resonance, different framework. Very interesting. It's so beautiful that despite all the, you know, well-known problems and issues and difficulties with the Catholic Church, that you were able to kind of get that transmission yeah. anyway as a little girl. Thank you for sharing that. It's just fascinating. It's just really, really cool. And so was it the Piti Sukha coming up in meditation that reminded you of those early experiences or was it partly the sacred feeling that can happen? Again, I haven't thought about this for a long time, but I remember that on that first 20-day retreat, that in that opening of the PT and the Sukha, the mind opened as well. So not constrained by that particular framework that I had come from, and not knowing that I was being guided or supported by another one, I saw the mind open, and I'm using mind in this case as head center, not just as the whole chip, so the, the head center opened. And there was a sort of ways of understanding that earlier experience and some frameworks for it and some kind of freer way of understanding all of that. Well, what's really compelling is that you made a comment that this is kind of reminding you of connections with the soul-making dharma that you're working on developing and teaching now, and that perhaps you hadn't thought of those connections. And so my question is, what are the connections that you're seeing there? Okay, so firstly, I think I had realized, obviously, that in going further with the soul-making dharma, that there's particular sensibilities that had been opened up early on. I'm aware of that. But what I'm seeing now is my attraction and affinity with soulful ways of looking, which I wouldn't have had that language, neither at seven nor at 26. So what I'm seeing is, oh yes, when I began the Dharma, this is the piece I hadn't seen before. When I began the Dharma, I was attracted to the soulfulness in it. 
not just through the meditative experience and then how that can open the mind and the heart and the sensibility and perception, also the fantasy of the tradition. You know, I remember in the very beginning, the Buddha images were really alive for me in a certain way, you know, and dimensional and was a very easy and natural sense, even though I had this kind of split of this modern sensibility of not being religious and then this religious sensibility at the same time. So what am I seeing now is that maybe right from the beginning, well, of course, there was the also attracted very, very much to the model of the Four Noble Truths and that very brilliant way of not having to go to the metaphysical and those kinds of questions that the contangled mind, but going right into the sort of pragmatic, okay, there's suffering and it's woven by clinging and craving. That also attracted me. But at the same time, in parallel with that, was this absolute love of the soulful sensibility. And then if I use the language now from Rob and the soul-making dharma, the fantasy of the path, my fantasy as someone on the path and what the goal of the path was and that whole thing becoming in Rob's language fantasy with a big f not just a papancha twist but something that is full of meaning full of resonance full of devotion where there's really love where there's really eros where there's really a narrative through which one can fully fully 100% give oneself that's one way of understanding fantasy and I can see that my initial dharma fantasy included that this seems like a perfect bridge to begin talking about soul making dharma and especially you offered to define words like soulfulness or soul making in a way that would help us to understand the range of what you're talking about and working with at least a little better I think it's interesting, and of course I understand why, but it's just kind of funny and fascinating that, you know, if we were having a conversation about something like ham sandwiches, no one would get all up in arms that we make sure that we define the emptiness of the ham sandwich. (laughs) But if we use the word soul in a Buddhist context, everyone's going to immediately prickle. Oh, <laughs> so if you feel like waiting in there and talking about that, I'd love to hear what you have to say. You know, it's a really rich concept. I know it's problematic for lots of people. But like you say, anything else we use, like even the word self, we would use. And we know it's empty. And yet it's a really helpful concept to be able to work with our experience. So yeah, it's a rich term, so actually. But if we go to definitions, then you know, the soul-making dhamma is both a paradigm and practices whereby the meditator can train their heart and mind and intellect and sensitive heart and imagination and body resonances to become an instrument of perception that can see in soulful ways, right? So soulful ways in this ways of looking, so premised on the emptiness and ways of looking view, that there's always a way of looking, even right down to the most subtlest perception. Unless it's a cessation, there's a way of looking. And these are working with ways of looking, training to see and sense oneself, the other in the world, in ways that bring more beauty, in ways that open up more dimensionality, that have more resonances and more meaningfulnesses and 
not only restore sacredness, but actually expand senses of sacredness, which is quite a bold claim. So soulful ways of looking. It's sort of circular, but soulful ways of looking. Soul, basically, in this case, is then is that instrument of perception or where we are tuned with the chitta, the heart, body, mind, intellect, imagination, instinct, everything is tuned to be able to see in soulful ways. That's what we could call soul. It's such a deep and rich word in English and so ancient in our culture, the word soul. I found myself recently using it in a talk with a Buddhist teacher and felt my own sense of how important that word can be Mm. because it seems to point to, I'm not going to say it points to a thing at all, but it just points to a kind of opening or a way of being that no other word that we have does. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think I would agree with that. I mean, perhaps people have other words but a way of being or certain kinds of resonances or ways of being impacted that I don't have another word that could stand in for that at this point. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Now, looking at your course description, you know, this is like one of the, (laughs) or let's say the prerequisites for the course. This is very, very rigorous set of prerequisites And what is it about soul-making dharma that you feel, obviously you feel it requires these prerequisites, and what is it about it that makes these necessary? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Yeah, there's a lot of prerequisites for that course. I know it could be very off-putting for some or, or just seem like it's too out of reach, but actually each one of those is quite developable. You know, you were able to tune into a sense of the numinous or the sacred as a little girl with maybe no prerequisites at all. (laughs) Good point. So the difference between me being seven and the prerequisite page on the BCBS site is that soul-making dharma isn't just devoted to being able to perceive the numinous because there are many different ways that one can perceive the numinous and within many different frameworks. What I didn't have at seven nor at 26, would be a root in a very thorough emptiness teaching that then let myself see or let the practitioner see that one is actually implicated in the enacting of perception and therefore is involved in participating in making. You know, having read Seeing That Freeze pretty thoroughly, I think I know what you mean Mm -hmm. with what you just said, the implication of our own participation in perception. But could you just unpack that a little bit? It's such a rich and interesting and fascinating topic. What do you mean exactly by our participation in perception? Okay, thank you. So from an emptiness perspective, so not having to go to the soul-making dharma yet, in the way that Rob unpacks emptiness, there's a few ideas that are worth kind of laying on the table again at this point. One idea is that there is always a way of relating. One always comes into a moment of perception. One arises, self and the object and the world co-arise, and that one's stance, one's poise of the heart, one's way of relating, one's inclination to even orient the mind in a particular direction, this plus whether one is open or not, whether one's 
lens of attention is focused or wider, all of these are part of what constitutes a way of looking. So one is implicated, one cannot be outside of reality, looking at it, some objective, you know, way things really are. So one is invariably part of weaving the sense of self, other and world that arise. So a way of looking then, if, and I'll get to participation, a way of looking then is more than, oh, I'm having experience and I'm going to relate to it in skillful ways, right? That doesn't necessarily well it gives you a little bit of a sense of participating in perception but with a, a root a thorough root in deep emptiness where one can see or intuit the complete unbinding of the self and other and world sense including the present moment sense then one sees the sense of subject that arises and perception is made that one is part of making that we can't help it so that's the premise, and no one has to believe it. But I think, you know, in seeing that freeze, you can work with that and really see the beauty of that. Not only the liberative effect of it, but the beauty and what that opens up in terms of how perception is made. I don't know if that answers the piece about participation from a emptiness perspective, but then how that moves into the soul-making dharma is that one is interested in, in engaging this ways of looking, not only to unbind the sense of self, right, to loosen the sense of self, other, and world that keep being made, so thereby reducing the dukkha, but one can come into that mystery of perception with ways of looking that open to more beauty and sacredness. And then one is participating in the weaving Another way of putting it, if I put it in a poetic way, that one's chitta can become the birthplace, the birthing place of the angels. And angels I'm using in a very poetic way here, but let's say something with more dimensionality. There's no premise that there are angels and they exist or there is dimensionality and it exists or there is sacredness. But neither is it, there is not. You know, it's, it's avoiding that binary of something exists, something doesn't exist. And then right there in that middle way, one can train this sensitive organ of perception that each one of us is, right? The whole of it, body, heart, and mind. And this is why the prerequisites are so tough. It's like we need some skill with our emotional life. We need self-knowledge. We need some energy body awareness and facility with that. Otherwise, it's just not very accessible. But with those foundations worked a bit and all of us can train in those if we have the interest in a way there's also a kind of privilege in it but with that then one can come into perception and participate in the making and the weaving of soulful worlds it's not that one does it and it's all down to my way of looking what we have in the soul making done is this beautiful idea that the way one participates in perception is what we call create, discover. You know, so like some spiritual pathways I've been involved in will say you discover the truth, you discover what's really here. And then a more sort of postmodern perspective will have where you create it, you know, it's all down to the context and the lenses you have and all of that. And here there's something exquisite, I find, 
the stance, the poise of the heart here is one that enters into create, discover, not one after the other, but like simultaneously create, discover soulful worlds. When I look over the Soul Making Dharma material, and I remember Rob mentioning this a little bit as well when we talked, there is an emphasis on facility with the energy body, practice with energy work of some sort. What role would you say the energy body or being able to meditate with energy or energy centers plays in soul-making dharma? Yeah, thank you, Michael. Well, let me start with body first and then go to energy body. First thing I could say is that for the imagination to be a contemplative faculty, you know, one that can really lead onward, we need our body as part of that instrument of perception because imagination can go in all kinds of places. And as we know, as Dharma practitioners, the spinning of Papancha can be very compelling at times. <laughs> um, so the body is porting on a contemplative level, but energy body awareness, as Rob speaks about it, if I just briefly outline, that would be the whole arena of the body and the space around the body as one harmonized field. So some kinds of ways of modes of knowing the body that are conducive to samatha, for example. Then why that's important here is that when that whole bodily field and the space around the body is known as one field, one energetic field of different kinds of tones, textures, qualities, then it's soft and elastic. It's malleable. There's already implied in that less fabrication of self, slightly less fabrication of the self-sense. And it seems like that mode of knowing the body and of attending to the body is one that lets us be available to certain kinds of soulful perceptions. So that would be a second response. And I'll give one more. I think there's a lot that could be said about this, but one is one of the elements of the way of looking in soul-making dharma is, as I just said, is, is slightly less fabrication than the normal center of gravity for the self-sense. But it's not completely unfabricated. We need to retain our location. It doesn't just completely go into a vast universal kind of knowing or sense. So for the soul-making dharma, we need a less fabricated sense of self, but we still need enough sense of self here, enough sense of the subject here to be able to be in relationship with what is more than me in ways that lead to more beauty and sacredness. So the soul-making dharma is made in two-ness. It's not made in oneness. Oneness is implied oneness is implied, we would need to know that's another valid and beautiful way of knowing. But from knowing the, the deep emptiness and knowing different kinds of oneness, two-ness that arises out of that is not a sort of mistaken duality. It's a necessity to be in relationship with. So energy body awareness supports loosening fabrication enough, but also retaining enough self-sense for this kind of way of knowing. And would you say that this energetic way of seeing the body is the result of looking at the body in a less fabricated way? And when we're seeing the body with less fabrications, that it appears as 
or it almost like knows itself as this much more fluid, much more expansive, less solid sort of thing? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in effect, what you're saying is important. It's both the way of regarding the body, which has less fabrications, and then it's the body itself is both perceived and knows itself in another way. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that always struck me so poignantly in my Vipassana work was that when engaging with the body very deeply, and I'll just put this in this way, you know, that the body does not see itself the way that the mind sees the body. At least to me, the body seems to see itself as this very vibrant and fluid and open field of energy or something. It just doesn't have that kind of mechanical pulleys, weights, and levers kind of view of itself that maybe my schooling inculcated into my mind. Yeah, and I think you're pointing to something important here also when you say the schooling inculcated into our mind is like our ways of knowing as modern people will be informed by those worldviews, which aren't right or wrong, but they're particular kinds of, in this case, mechanistic worldviews, will be informing even our way of coming to regard our body with mindfulness. Those views will still be operative in the background, usually unarticulated. So yeah, and the body can be known multiple ways. It can be known mechanically, which is really helpful if you're a, you know, doing a back surgery on somebody. And it can be known as an open energetic field, and it can be known as many, many, many different levels of perception of knowing the body. Yeah, so, you know, you kind of pointed to it earlier in your response, but I'd like to unpack just a little bit a question that comes up for me in regard to working with the imaginal or the dreaming mind, we might also almost say, in soul-making dharma. You brought it up, and I'd like to unpack it further, and that is how do we keep from just spinning off into papancha or just going into some sort of fantasy of an acquisition or whatever? How are we allowing this to deepen our soul-making? Yeah, thank you. So I named the factor of the energy body awareness, and I could answer this kind of quite technically, actually, you know, the premise in Rob's unpacking of emptiness, which becomes the doorway for this kind of soul-making dharma, is that there's always a way of looking. There can't not be a way of looking. You know, so the way of looking has the inclinations of mind, the mode of attention, the values, even the worldviews that are uh, unarticulated. So he's described what he called the lattice of imaginal perception, which has and this is not exhaustive, but 28 elements that are informing the way of looking for soul-making dharma perception to be soul-making dharma perception. So what would then stop us spinning out into papancha would be to have that kind of inquiring mind that sees, are these elements present or are they absent, these 28? So they include certain kind of emptiness elements like less fabrication and normally what happens if we're starting to cling and crave and go off into a sort of rabbit hole a papancha born of craving and clinging usually i mean just on one level the energy body will probably start to tighten and narrow and shrink a little bit so that kind of dexterity and inquiry of knowing what's happening with the body 
presence will be one and energy body awareness is one of the elements on this lattice mm. and by lattice it's like an interconnected sort of scaffold or it could be seen even as a like a womb in which something can be born has all these 28 elements but the other emptiness ones are what he called the imaginal middle way so when we're in a poor fantasy as he would have called it a poor fantasy that's very reified, then there's there's a lot of reality being given to that fantasy. Or, conversely, a lot of non-reality being given to it will fall either side of that binary of asserting that it's real or asserting that it's unreal. So there's a number of elements. And one doesn't have to just go through the list. Are they present? Are they absent? That might be what we do when we're training. But in a perception, one will notice, is the heart, like there's a number of elements that have to do with the heart, is it humble? Is there humility present? Is there reverence present? Is there a sense of grace, like what is happening here is an inexplicable gift? This image arising, this soulful fantasy, this iconic image that arises right now, Am I allowed and available enough to be struck by the grace of it that I really recognize I'm not creating that? I'm involved, I'm implicated. My way of looking is absolutely part of this. But there's also a recognition that this is beyond my creation as well. So then there's a sense of grace. So there's heart elements, there's emptiness elements, there's bodily elements. There's a very beautiful and intelligent lattice of interdependent elements that will be informing the way of looking. I love the lattice and people find it so, so helpful. Rob just kind of threw it out once as, oh, these are the elements that are present and everyone who was really into the work was like, oh, that's really helpful. That helps me tune my instrument of perception because from our perspective of the soul-making dharma, something is more or less imaginal. It's not a binary. You know, you might have an image arise or a fantasy arise and it's quite reified. There might be a lot of craving and clinging in it. But it can become more and more imaginal as these elements switch on and are illuminating the way of looking. This is incredibly fascinating. I'm just curious if you can give us a sense of what would one do if one of these elements of the lattice were found to be missing? (laughs) That's lovely. I'll have to make it concrete for me to think about that. So let's say, okay, let's say there's no humility present. Mm-hmm. Right, it's really like I'm doing this, or the heart is hardened, or it's just stuck, or whatever. Or this image makes me appear to be so great, or whatever. Right, right. So you know, there is a kind of beauty and glory there, but one would also know it's not of one's making, and then the humility would be there. So if the humility was not present, a couple of things in the actual moment of working with the image, if one knows the poise of humility, and that's also on a spectrum. You know, it's not like we're humble or not humble. It's on a spectrum of more or less. One could support one's heart to take that posture. Mm. You know, even if I'm not humble with this image, I could bring perhaps another image, inner world or the outer world, in whose presence I know how to bow my head and soften my heart. So one could actually skillfully, if there's enough dexterity with the chitta, place oneself in that poise of the heart and try it on here. And that would be one way of working with it. Outside of that particular practice, one might actually inquire a little bit more into humility. Like it might be just something that I just don't know yet. I just don't know it very well in my life. And then one could do some, you know, 
conceptual inquiry about I could think of some questions to ask someone, you know, where might they have known it, where, or what's right about not letting yourself be humble, or what are the fears and the assumptions and the views about humility, or what are the kind of images of humility that you have that aren't actually very soulful, but have to do with more like degrading yourself or putting yourself down, for example, which isn't humility. So those are two initial responses that come. <laughs> So in this way, the lattice would almost help to point to areas of life that could be enriched. You know, you're noticing that almost generally there's humility missing. Yes. Uh, across the board. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So fascinating. Now, I'm cognizant that we're using this term imaginal, and I'm very familiar with the term through the Jungian stream of writing and teaching and so on. And I'm curious if you in Soul Making Dharma or Rob were using that term in a way that's fairly congruent with the normal way of saying it, or do you have a very special definition of of imaginal? It makes me want to laugh when you say that. It's like everything has very, very, very particular definitions in Rob's work, <laughs> which is part of his gift, right? There's a lot of precision and particularity. You notice that I'm asking the question in that way. Yeah. <laughs> you can guess what the response is. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm not really fully qualified to comment how it's used in other traditions. So I just have a little sense from the things I've read and understood. So I might be inaccurate here, but recently I've been listening and looking a little bit at the work of Henry Corbin. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's a quite a good example because it's a very, very, very particular and quite dualistic sense in a fine way of the sense of the imaginal. How Rob would be using it that might be different to that would be that it wouldn't absolutely assert reality or unreality to the imaginal. Mm -hmm. So this is tricky and subtle ontologically because actually it could be really helpful to give the imaginal more reality state, especially if it's not in our domain of knowing, right? We could lean a little bit more to letting it be a little bit more real so that we can enter into the world of images and the beauty and soulfulness that can be made there. Yeah, I'm really not qualified to comment on other streams, but my guess would be that one's participation and one's way of looking wouldn't be as fully unpacked as what the em deep emptiness teaching allows. That's my mm -hmm. guess. It might be there intuitively. It might be there. I really don't know. But my guess would be because Rob gives such a precise emphasis and there's such a great training of that in the Buddhist meditative tradition via the insight meditation and the way he unpacks emptiness, that our way of looking it participates in the divinity, participates in, is necessary for the imaginal to be born. So there's a lovely word, one of the elements of the lattice. And again, I don't know if this would be in other conceptual frameworks around the imaginal, but one of the elements is what we call create, discover as one verb. So in a moment of perception, one is both active and creative through one's way of looking, but one is also discovering something that is as if already there. And so this really points to the fact that all perception is fabricated. Yes. Or yeah. involves fabrication, yeah. It's fabricated, yeah, from that perspective. 
And that may or may not be explicit in some of those other forms. I don't know. So interesting. As I'm, you know, talking to people in the Dharma world, the meditation world, and so on, I notice there's just such a tremendous amount of interest in soul-making Dharma. And so it's really fascinating and I think helpful to hear you discuss some of the elements, Catherine. And a couple questions that come to mind. The first one is, what's the major obstacle that you see, let's say, some hypothetical, typical person who's done quite a bit of meditation having when they come to soul-making dharma? And how do you help them over that obstacle? I'll try and answer generally, but I think the obstacles are going to be quite particular to the soul style of the person. Mm. You know, so somebody who comes, they have an artistic bent, let's say, um, so it's actually very easy for them to kind of play in the world of image and imagination. They sense and intuit more beauty and more beyonds. That person may have a different obstacle than somebody who is really, really switched on by the conceptual framework of soul-making dharma, and they just see the brilliance of Rob's work, and they that's where their eros is. That's where their desire for more comes, which might be different than from the person who has let's say, a very religious sensibility and is easily devoted and they might have different obstacles than the one who really loves the conceptual frameworks, for example. So different kinds of souls can be attracted. If I speak generally, I think one of the hardest things is that it's a real art. You know, it's a really profound work and takes a lot and there's a lot to it. There's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of practice, there's a lot of dexterity needed. And I think sometimes the obstacle can be, what do I do? What do I do in my practice? It's not A leads to B. If I think of Rob practicing this, it's kind of an improvised art. But that's because a lot was at his fingertips, in a sense, from where his practice had developed. I think probably, yeah, generally, I could say, sometimes it's like, what do I need to do to break it down into the kind of nuts and bolts? Because there's so many doorways you could enter. I mean, if I compare that to, let's say, an atar practice in the emptiness practices, there's still a lot to it. There's really a lot to it. You need, you know, you need your body, you need the mindfulness, you need a number of factors. But it's relatively clear what the task is, even if you can fumble with it for ages. Here, it's like our task is to train the whole instrument of perception to see in soulful ways. And there's so much to that. It's like playing a very beautiful musical instrument or something like that. And I don't think that's necessarily going to have to stay that way. I think as we, you know, take Rob's legacy and break it down into different pieces, I think that will probably change. But somebody does need some background prerequisites of practice to be able to enter the territory. So I'm curious, what kind of person do you think would get the most out of this work or thrive the most through the soul-making dharma? Someone who has a strong desire for more beauty, more sacrednesses, more meaningfulnesses, who intuits that possibility, the possibility that their particularities, like everything that makes them them, their gifts, their vulnerabilities, including their dukkha and inheritance and heritage, all of it 
that they intuit that there is more soul that can be made out of this. This can be known in ways that open more dimensionality, more divinity of self and other and world. And, you know, I could just briefly say that there will be those ones who love emptiness practices as outlined by Rob and see that it's a kind of possible next step for them. It's like, oh, wow, you can get skilled in unbinding perception. What's the logical next step here in terms of the fabrication of perception? Could be someone who intuits the possibility of enchantment, you know, but an enchantment of the world that's not separate from a maturity that cares about justice, for example. Could be somebody who has a lot of eros, you know, they have a strong abundance of eros that they recognize there's more. There's more for this. Somebody who has both a religious sensibility and a, an appreciation of the modern mind and the rationality of that and that they desire or intuit that those two things can support each other in going further. You know, because what gets made in the soul-making dharma or the premise of it is not only restoring sacredness but also expanding sacrednesses. And that's quite a possibility. So somebody who intuits and wants that would thrive. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Michael. It's been fun. And thank you for drawing out of me things I didn't even know were there. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, 
So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the DeconstructingYourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at DeconstructingYourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>